Hi there, and welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast, the show that takes a lighthearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. But Aaron, you know, if we turn to real life for a second, what a week it was. You were in New York City, which was very cool. Very cool. Well, it's actually very hot, but yeah, um, I was in New York for the week and uh, for good reasons. But you, you, my friend, you had, well... Not your new home, but your own home. You were hit pretty hard with the storm. Yes, we were. It was Stormageddon just outside of Almont. And uh, tornadoes came through the Ottawa area. And the damage is unbelievable. And, uh, we, you know, we sold our home and it closes at the end of June. And less than a kilometer from the house is complete destruction. I showed you the yeah. pictures. And I feel horrible for those uh, families. But... Uh, they're, they're saying power in that area might not be back for a week. Well, when you know, the pictures you said, I mean, with the poles down the way they are, yeah, how can you have power? I mean, they, you're, you're basically rebuilding everything. Well, for, that's for right. Hydro, and that one, that one picture I showed you with a silo that just looked like they oh, cut uh, the top of the silo off with a knife, right? It looked like a special effect in a movie. Didn't it? Like when, you me, when you sent me that picture, I thought, remember that movie? Was it Tornado or whatever? It yeah. looked like that. It was like, I was looking for cows flying, you know? Yeah, exactly. It was something else. But uh, this sounds, though, like a good time to uh, hop in the virtual van and do a rock and roll road trip. And I think uh, we're going to head to, what, May 23rd, 1973. And this song is, I didn't realize people hated it so much. But uh, (laughs) are you ready to take a trip? I'm, I'm willing and able, yep. Yeah, let's go back to San Francisco, May the 23rd. 1973 and find out what all the fuss was about. So this is an interesting story because it kind of spans 10 years. I will explain that in a second, but we're, we're back at May 23rd, 1973. And there's a band called Jefferson Airplane who were huge. Right, Tony, in the 60s with White Rabbit, Somebody to Love. And uh, they were prevented from giving a free concert at Golden Gate Park in San Francisco uh, for a very bizarre reason. Yeah, it was a strange reason um, because there was a a ban against using electronic instruments. And uh, Jefferson Airplane was uh, one of those bands that really um, epitomized uh, the psychedelic period, didn't they? Like they were, yeah. they were, well, White Rabbit, like songs like that. But uh, yeah, there was a ban on electronic music. And so uh, the San Francisco authorities uh, said, uh-uh, no concert today. And it was a free show that they were going to do just outside the Golden Gate Bridge. But of course, the story continues into the future, doesn't it? With a song that, uh, like we were mentioning earlier, I had no idea that people hated so much. Well, the funny thing is, is that, and I was just doing some research just before we started, and the the, the city basically said to Jefferson Airplane, um, you know, we, we, we built the city in orchestral music, not anything else. And they were really annoyed by that because it was a huge insult to the band because I'm going to put, I'm going to say this, they put San Francisco on the map. I mean, they were the, they were the perfect San Francisco hippie band. And, you know, Scott McKenzie's writing songs about going to San Francisco to see Jefferson Airplane. And they were pretty insulted. So they wrote a song about We Built This City, but not on orchestral music, but on something else, right? On rock and roll. On rock and roll. And 
let's do the full disclosure because when we were chatting <laughs> last night i actually kind of like the song I, I, I like the song a lot, actually. I, yeah. I, I think it's it's there's some really funny lines. I love the line, that, and it, I, actually they took the line and named the album from which it came called and it's, it's knee deep in the hoopla. Yeah, that is such a great expression. I love that. Me too. I'm like, what's wrong with these? Like, I'm I'm, I'm listening to the song last night, going, okay, I'm not hearing something because I like this song. <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess. We'll get into just how despised this song is in a moment. But uh, now I will say one thing that just about every 80s cliche that you can think of in pop slash rock music is thrown into We Built This City, don't you think? Yeah, and and I think one of the other reasons why people kind of took a dislike to the song is because, and I think this was very smart, I don't know if you know this or not, but you know the song, there's a break in the song where they go, it's like they're talking about San Francisco and it's like a hot day and all this. Well, what they did was they sent it out to radio stations with that part taken out. Mm. So every city could get a DJ. So like in Ottawa, for example, they go, well, it's a beautiful day here at the Byward Market, you know, and you could adapt it to whatever city you lived in, which is a bit cynical, but I thought, I mean, I worked in radio at the time and we did it. It was very cool. Like It, it was just a, a chance to kind of make it about your hometown. Okay, I don't know why. I mean, when you when you look at all the the top list of worst songs of all time, and it keeps topping the list, and and you're right, Tony, it is cliche. It's cliche from beginning to end. But okay, so yeah. oh, exactly. Now let's go over some of these because we we got to mention some of these. Uh, Blender, the magazine, the music magazine Blender, ranked the song as the worst song ever. Uh, <laughs> And that was in conjunction with a VHS, VH1 special called The 50 Most Awesomely Bad Songs Ever. And I've seen that list. And uh, so they put this at number one. Um, there's a bunch of other lists here, too. Uh, oh, my gosh. Well, that line, one of the, one of the journalists. Uh, so here's, uh, what was this guy's name? Craig Marks, okay, Blender editor, said, and this is his quote, it purports to be an anti-commercial uh, song, but reeks of 80s corporate rock commercialism. It's a real reflection of what practically killed rock music in the 80s. Well, I don't know if I agree with that, but... Uh, I don't agree at all. No, I don't, I, I don't, I no, don't either. I disagree. I'm going to just say it. it. Yeah, it is very commercial, and it's got, I, you know, I, I think it defines the term earworm. You know, you, you that melody goes in. But all of... Okay, so at this point, they were called Starship. Because Jefferson Airplane had split in '73, probably because of this con- the concert they were banned from, and they became Starship or Jefferson Starship. And all of the Jefferson Starship stuff, they ditched the hippie. All of it was just hook ridden, you know. Miracles, remember that one? Yeah. Um, the one from the the model film. I mean, they're all really full of hooks. And rebuild the city is literally one hook from another. <laughs> Now, Aaron, I'm going to give out a fact to our listeners here and uh, get ready to ring the bell, okay, my friend? Because I bet you a lot of people don't know this. So before I give out this fact, in 2011, Rolling Stone readers said it was the worst song ever. But guess what? Guess who wrote this song? It was written by longtime Elton John collaborator Bernie Taupin and Peter Wolf. So Bernie Taupin was involved in writing the worst song ever so can you ring the bell please good sir i'm ringing the bell there we go but, and, and peter wolf of course is from jay giles band one of the most you know 
worshipped blues bands of all time. I mean, so it's it's weird that these two guys and the two other writers were involved as well. The four people wrote the song. Um, <laughs> I I don't know. You know, you come across certain songs and you go, uh, I really, really hate the song. You're going, why? What's, you know, I don't know. Uh, and again, I'm, I've been called a musical snob, Tony. Believe it or not. Yep. Your friend Aaron. And I love the song. I, I would put it on any day of the week and enjoy it. It yeah. puts a smile on my face. Oh, me too. Whenever I hear it, I kind of, you know, a little grin there and puts a little bit of quickness into my step. Yeah. That's like Uptown Girl. If, yes. If, yeah. if, you, if you can listen to Uptown Girl and not tap your foot and not smile, you need to check your pulse. That's right. Now, one thing here, though, the Marconi plays the mamba. I, that, they got a lot of flack over that because a mamba is a snake as opposed to the musical form of dance called the mambo. So, uh, you know, yeah. I wonder I wonder what the story behind that is, because that's a little odd. Well, I mean, listen, they're not English profs. That's true. That's true. They're not. They're not like a Sting or someone like that, right? So, <laughs> no, no, they're not Sting. You know, it's it's it's. I was reading an article a while back about grammatical errors and number one songs, and one of the biggest ones was in "Live and Let Die," because McCartney sings in this ever-changing world in which we live in, and it should say in this ever-changing world in which we live. Yeah, but it doesn't have the same get, doesn't have the same lyrical flow though. So, right, right. So Marconi might have played a snake. Who yeah, knows? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I don't know that this song deserves the absolute hatred that it's received. It's, no, it's, there's it's, plenty of other songs that deserve that, but not this one. I agree. However, and, um, now you're. What did you pick for charts? Because we're talking back in '73. This would have been pretty cool. And, I, and before I go on, I just want to say that I just just flipped. Uh, I hit the wrong button. I went to a name or a website, GQ magazine, yeah. uh, in 2011. Also named it as the worst song of all time. Oh come on! Now they're just piling on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's like it's like that kid who can't run in football. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I did um, the, the I put Billboard top percentage um, Billboard top five albums of 1973 and I, I did it because i thought it was really interesting number five is a um, edgar winter band an album called the only come out at night uh which by the way i've seen edgar winter play with ringo Starr, and it was fantastic he's just a, he's a showman now as he ever was you know oh yeah that would have been a great show he's great number four bread the best of uh, a band my wife just loves now this is 1973, so keep this in mind. Yeah. And both of these albums, number three and two, will stay at number one and two the following week for about four months. Number three is The Beatles, 1962 to 1966. And number two, The Beatles, 1967 to 1970. Uh, and they would go on to be so the next week, they were number one and two. And the number one album was Houses of the Holy by Led Zeppelin. So they. Two compilations of old tracks from the 60s knocked out a brand new album by Zeppelin. And Tony, I sent you a picture of me standing in front of the building. Yeah. In New York City for the, the photograph for um, Physical Graffiti. Yeah, that, that was, was cool. that was very cool. That's so neat that you got to see that. Yeah, it's very neat. So listen, when we go to New York, I know exactly where it is. I'll take you. <laughs> now, we are going to stay in 1973 next, but we're going to go to May the 28th. And... 
This one is a band that was highly inspired by the Beatles. They set a record, and it must still be a record, but uh, we're going to check this story out because I remember this album was still on the charts when I was in high school, for God's (laughs) sakes. So we'll be right back. It's still there. Yeah, it probably is. And uh, so we'll be right back with a little talk about Pink Floyd. So it's May 28th, 1973, and Pink Floyd, uh, this classic album, and I'm sure, as I mention it, you can visualize the album cover if you're listening to the show right now, but The Dark Side of the Moon was on both the UK and the US album charts, and that's not the big deal. The big deal is how friggin' long this album stayed on the charts and i'm going to let you talk about that yeah this is unbelievable and like i said i remember it was on the charts when i was in high school you know when i was in, on in high school in the 80s so uh how long did this thing stay on the charts so it was on the the, the american not the british charts but the u.s charts for 741 continuous weeks from 73 to 1988 <laughs> longer than any other album in history so but it's back on the charts now because and here's the thing, Tony, that in 88, Billboard decided to split the charts and they had, they just, they came up with something called the Top Pop Catalog Chart, which meant that if it was an older album, five years older, five years or older, it went on this chart, which was unfair. But anyways, but it was on there for another 759 weeks, right? <laughs> Goodness. So that's what, 1,500 weeks, right? Yeah, 1,500 weeks on the charts. And I, I don't know if, if anything will ever touch that, but... Um, what do you think, you know, what do you think caused that? I mean, it, it's a great album, there's no doubt, but there are plenty of great albums out there. And, and what what was the reason for this one, being able to well, set this record, do you think? And before I tell you with my thoughts on that, it only made number two in England. It didn't actually make number one. And it made number one for one week in America. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? It's, it's just weird. I, I think it... It, uh, it's it's an album that, it's like Pepper. It took on a life of its own. And, um, you know, the poster, I don't know if you remember, I mean, I have the original copy that came with two posters and some stickers. And I think the fact that the, it was the first time Pink Floyd had a hit single in America, Money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the weird stuff started happening. And what I mean by that is someone discovered that if you put on Dark Side of the Moon, the same time as the beginning of Wizard of Oz, it kind of matches up a wee bit. I think there's some uh, stimulants involved in that, but anyways, um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> but it's just it's it's like it, it's like Rocky Horror Picture Show every Friday in Toronto at the Roxy Theater for years. I'm mean, talking decades. You could go to the Rocky Horror Picture Show Saturday night at midnight. And everyone came with their costumes and their newspapers and everything else. I like Dark Side of the Moon. I'm going to be very transparent. It's not my favorite Floyd album. It, I mean, I, I, I much prefer Wish You Were Here or uh, Animals. But, to, hey, okay, tidbit. How was Dark Side of the Moon very closely related to Paul McCartney? Oh, is this going to be a ring the bell moment? Cause it I've, sure is. <laughs> okay, so I've had one and you're going to get one. So how is Dark Side of the Moon related to Paul McCartney? I'm not sure. So let's. I'll get the, the bell ready. Get the bell ready because there's, there's parts on the album 
where you get you hear talking and one of the at one point someone says i don't know i was just too drunk things like that that is members of wings who are recording red row speedway next door paul mccartney's not on there but you will hear the other three members of wings talking that pink floyd recorded and put on the album so that's actually henry mcculloch denny lane and denny sewell and they're all chatting and that's the voices that pink floyd used on the album dark side of the moon oh there you go i'm ringing the bell right now (laughs) (laughs) andrew will be happy (laughs) and this so you know we're talking about charts for this whole segment but you picked the top five billboard singles from may 28th 1973 and what what do you have on here I just thought these charts were, again, because I couldn't do the album charts, because it would have been very close to the charts I just did. Um, so the top five singles, and, and I'm gonna, I want you to give me a thumbs up, thumbs down, okay? Okay. All right, number five, Elton John, Daniel. Yep, thumbs up for sure. Yep, agreed. Edgar Winterman, Frankenstein. Thumbs up. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. The Sweet, Little Willie. I don't know if I know that song. I guarantee when you hear it, because I put it on the playlist, it'll be, oh, I love this song. It's okay. a great song. Okay. <laughs> this, yeah, this, is, this is the odd man out here, hey? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> I can do it without giggling um, like a schoolboy. Yeah. Tony Orlando and Don, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. <laughs> I, I can just hear the version, you know, tie a yellow ribbon. <sighs> yeah, yeah. That's, uh, oh. I mean, every Italian loves Tony Orlando, right? So my, my grandfather listened to Tony Orlando, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have um, I have a Christmas special on DVD of Johnny Cash, and Tony Orlando's on it. And to hear Johnny Cash sing "Tie a Yellow Ribbon," it's just <laughs> oh, Tony. Number one, <laughs> I can guarantee you're going to do a thumbs up. Stevie Wonder, you are the sunshine of my life. Not only will I give it one thumbs up, I'll give it two thumbs up because uh, Rick and I frequently cover this song uh, on gigs. So, yeah, great song. Is it is it is it a difficult song to play, or is it fairly straightforward? Uh, no, it's uh, middle of the road. Not super easy, not super hard, but a lot of fun. Some uh, Stevie, you know, really knew how to put chords together. So uh, it's a lot of fun to solo over. Actually, yeah. I got to hear you next time. I hope to come to your neck of the woods when you're performing one day. So yeah, for sure. And uh, you know, we get to see our new old house that we moved into. I'm, I'm recording from the bunker down here while we uh, are traveling in the virtual van this week. But uh, now we're going to go one day forward, but we're going to skip back what eight years, right to 1965. And we talked hey, about you're the teacher. Yeah, that's Yeah. Look at that. Eh? Um, not just here for my looks, my friend, but uh <laughs> <laughs> the eye candy of the duel yeah for sure <laughs> so we're going to go to may 29th 1965 but uh and we're going to be talking the beach boys uh because we talked about them recently when we talked about pet sounds but uh i've got a commercial that i'm going to play which uh, i picked just for you it's from 1973 and uh, you know i know you're a baseball guy so pick this just for you so are you ready to uh, enjoy Oh, I so am ready to enjoy, yes. All right, here's some uh, commercial goodness from 1973. It's a whole new ball game. Way 
way back into the pages of baseball history with 7-Eleven's new trading cup idea. Baseball Hall of Fame stars. 20 of the game's former greats on baseball trading cups. We have a new batch of today's superstars, too. So come on down to participate in 7-Elevens and slurp yourself a stack of stars. They're great. Trading cups, you got them here. With a 20 cent Tony, I don't know about you, but um, I, I didn't work very well with my dad. And he tried to teach me how to fix cars when I was a kid. Didn't go so well. So this story kind of strikes a chord with me. Get it? Chord? <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't good. resist that one. No, good one. Good one. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so what, what we were talking about the Beach Boys, but this is not a particularly pleasant story. But Although transparent, I found some of it amusing. Anyways. Over to you. Yeah, so uh, the Beach Boys are recording a song which I love, actually, uh, Help Me Rhonda. Uh, do you like that song? No, of course. Classic, yeah, classic. Yeah, it's a great song. So they're recording uh, Help Me Rhonda, and uh, that was their second U.S. number one, but their recording session was interrupted by uh, Brian's dad, Murray, who arrived at the studio, and he was intoxicated, and he decided that... Uh, the boys were doing everything wrong, and Brian was a bit of a control freak to start. I'm understating that here, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm going to play a little bit of audio of this altercation because both guys, you know, Brian and his dad, they ratcheted up to, to DEFCON 5 uh, pretty quickly, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, it escalates. Yeah. So I'm going to put, uh, put the little audio clip right here, and uh, we'll be right back. Are you going now? I'm no. This is all awfully unfair for you to. Are you going or staying? I don't know. It's going what you want. If you want to fight for success, I'll go all out. No, I don't. We don't um, do that. You think you got it made? No, we don't. Son? We would like to record under an atmosphere you. of calmness. And I you're love not you. My your mother loves you. Look, we like to relax. First of session. all, you should never have all these people here. Second of all, who's So, what'd you think? Well, first of all, it's sad that he's intoxicated, you know, and, and he, he's obviously, I don't know if he's doing it intentionally, but he's pushing buttons and not on the control board. He's pushing buttons, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I only played a few seconds, but uh, this thing goes on for minutes. And uh, oh, yeah, it's something else when you listen to it. And, uh, you know, Brian stood his ground at, at the very least because uh, sometimes he could wilt under uh pressure from his father but in this case he stood his ground and but it wasn't long after this was it that uh, that brian had his uh, nervous breakdown no it wasn't and and, the, and the, the, it also escalated to physical i mean it didn't just wasn't just arguments it, it led to a physical altercation over the soundboard and and um you know you 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 hit the nail on the head brian brian wilson was a bit of a, a control freak and this was always a bone between him and mike love I mean, to the to 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 this day, they can't see eye to eye or anything. But yeah, um, and it's a great song. I don't know what Murray's going on about. I mean, the harmonies in the song are fantastic. Strong melody. Again, like we built the city, it's got an incredible hook. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. 
So it just, you know, but Brian Wilson later said of the song, I mean, this is in the 2000s, I would have made a better rhythm. And he said, it wasn't in my pocket. And I don't know exactly what that means. But he, so he's finding fault with his old recordings too. But I think that's very typical of Brian Wilson. I think he listens to the old stuff and goes, well, that could have been better, right? Yeah. And, you know, uh, Murray, of course, was uh, not a failed musician, but he never, he was a musician who never made it big. And I think there was an element of jealousy there as well that Brian was uh, becoming very successful, don't you think? 100%. And Murray tried to get other, you know, he had other bands that he tried to manage or produce or, or get into the studio. And it, it never really uh, worked out. And he was a, I don't want to say failed either, but he wasn't exactly, you know, Jackie Gleason. And, and I don't mean that sarcastically. I mean, you, you look at some of the artists in the late 50s and who were huge. Murray Wilson wasn't one of them. But it's interesting, don't you think, that when Brian Wilson's own kids with Wilson Phillips, he kind of took a step back from the whole thing, didn't he? Yeah, that's true. And uh, because I know Murray had his fingerprints all over the Beach Boys at first. And uh, that's that's a, that's a good point, actually. Yeah. Well, Murray, you know, I've read a couple of books about the Beach Boys, and it, it's, it's a very, um, it's a tragic story. It's kind of like, not the same, but same, similar to Elvis, where you have people giving advice and not necessarily good advice. Mm-hmm. And they were young. How old were they when they started? They were kids. Oh right? yeah, I mean, late late teens probably. Yeah, and 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 I'm sure they signed the wrong deal for the wrong people, and um, it, it's it's you know that's why I love one of my favorite albums by the Beach Boys came out when they left Capitol Records and they were on their own label called Brother Records and they did an album called Surf's Up, great album, great album. Um, the other thing that's kind of cool is the B side, which was called Kiss Me Baby. Yeah. It was on the same album as Help Me Rhonda called The Beach Boys Today. It's the distinction of being the only track on the album whose recording spanned before and after his nervous breakdown. So Brian had his first nervous breakdown at this time. And uh, just, just a real sad situation, Brian Wilson. Really sad. Yeah, it is for sure. And, and um, you know, I, you see performances from later on, and you could always tell that he, he struggled, didn't he? It was always such a struggle for him. You know, I think he I think he envied the Beatles when the Beatles just became a studio band. I think he wanted that. I think he wanted the Beach Boys to do just that. And the Beatles were the first band to kind of have the the gumption, I guess, or the nerve to kind of say, we're not touring. We're, you know, we're just not going to tour. You could agree or disagree, but, you know, it it helped them progress as musicians, for sure, I think. Well, exactly. Well, you look at what came out uh, after they stopped touring with their their best albums, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, Murray quietly disappeared over time, which I think was probably the best thing, and and, uh, let, let them get on with what they could do. They were a talented group. They knew harmonies left, right, and center. Uh, we talked about this last week. God only knows. I was watching a show last night called The Good Doctor, and they used God only knows in it. And man, did it sound good! You know, yeah, it's, a, a, great yeah, it's a great song. Now, you know what? I'm looking at your chart here that you picked because you picked uh, the top five UK singles. And folks, this this top five list is wild because a, cer- <laughs> a certain group isn't on it, and it's 1965. Well, they're they were at number eight. Yeah, <laughs> with Ticket to Ride. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you recognize, how many of these bands do you recognize? Oh, I think three, like the, that yeah. I've, that I could say I know I've heard them, their music. Yeah, 
It's, it's a really unusual list. I, it is, isn't it? I, I, I kind of, and I just want to say that Help Me Rhonda in the UK, well, in America it made number one, Canada made number one. In the UK, it entered the charts at 33, but peaked at 27. Yeah. Which I, I was shocked. Mm-hmm. Shocked. Okay, top five UK singles of this week in 1965 was The Rocking Berries, Poor Mad Son. Great song. When you hear it, you're going to love it. Uh, Peter and Gordon has a slight connection to the Beatles because the Beatles wrote their first three hits. Um, this is True Love Ways, which is the old Buddy Holly song. Here's a dingable moment. The, their last hit single was a song called Woman, and it was written by a guy named Bernard Webb. Well, it wasn't Bernard Webb. It was actually Paul McCartney. And he wanted to prove that people weren't buying songs that him and John had written for other artists because of their names. They were buying them because they were good. So he put out this single with Peter and Gordon called Woman. Great song. Made top 40 on both sides of the Atlantic. Paul's point proven. Yeah, um, you know what? Give me a sec here to ring the bell, and then you can go to number two and number one. All right. <laughs> number three, Seekers, The Seekers, World of Our Own. You'll know that song when you hear it. Yeah, I know that uh, song. Yeah, that was one yeah. of the ones, yep. Yeah. Great song. Jackie Trent, Where Are You Now, My Love? And Where um, Are You Now, Jackie Trent? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you see... When you put a song out like that, you set yourself up. That's right. Leading in with the chin, as they say. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and number one, a singer who used to perform barefoot on stage, uh, Sandy Shaw, Long Live Love. Oh, wow. There, there to say go. that five times fast. Yeah, exactly. So there you go, folks. That's the top five singles. Uh, the week of May 29th, 1965 in the UK. Now it is time for our Memphis to Merseyside moment, and we've got a double. Both of these are such big stories, I think, that we should uh, cover them first. So we'll be right back with our From Memphis to Merseyside moment. So, who do you want to start with first, Aaron? Do you want to start with the uh, Fab Four, or do you want to start with Elvis? This doesn't have to go chronologically, I don't think. They're both great no, I mean, stories. I think you, could, you start wherever you, you... I'll follow. You start. Okay, let's do the Surprising. Beatles first. Let's do the Canadian Connection first, so... Okay, but well, you're going to have to say the French name of the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> so, Just say it. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I'll do that. So, this is uh, the week that May 26th, 1969... Um, in Montreal, John Lennon and Yoko Ono began their eight-day bed-in in in room 1742 of the Hotel La Reine Elizabeth, so the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal, um, to promote world peace. And this was where they recorded Give Peace a Chance. And there was a who's who of people in the room that are involved in that recording. I, I like, you know, Petula Clark was in there. Who else was in there? Tommy Smothers, he's playing the other acoustic guitar that you hear on the record. Um, what was the Timothy Leary can be heard singing in the chorus, and the local chapter of the Hare Krishna um, people. Uh, I don't know, mantra. Um, Tony, my my wife's cousin stayed in this hotel uh, three years ago, just prior to the pandemic, and the key which they let you keep has a picture of John and Yoko on it. You know those swipe keys? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I have the swipe key. It's very cool. I thought that was very cool. So can you uh, actually can you actually stay in room seven seventeen forty two? Like, are there people who can. book it just just for yep. that? A hundred percent. It's it's booked. You have to book it a year, two years in advance. And it must be more expensive, I imagine. 
Of course. <laughs> it's got a Beatle connection. That's right. <laughs> but you, in your notes, you note that the song is credited to Lennon and McCartney, even though Paul had nothing to do with the, the song. And that goes back to an agreement that Paul and John had made um, back in 1959. Yeah. They started writing songs. And they said, you know what? No matter what, every song we put out will be a John Lennon and Paul McCartney song. And it was it was the first solo single by Lennon. It came out as a Lennon McCartney. The second solo single, Cold Turkey, it just came out as John Lennon. And Paul was kind of like, hmm, gotcha. Okay. So he, um, when he put out things like Come, um, Come and Get It on Badfinger, by Badfinger, it was just Paul McCartney. But I, mean, I thought that was a nice tradition, little Lennon and McCartney, even though Paul didn't write the song. Yeah, no, I think it was a, it was a great tradition as well. And so that was a huge one because of the Canadian connection. And um, the other one we have to talk about. This is uh, amazing. Yeah, this is an unbelievable record. So this is May 25th, 1997. And uh, they keep track of artists who are dead and uh, how they do (laughs) selling, you know, their uh, merchandise and album sales and you name it. And uh, in 1997, May 25th, a report showed that Elvis had become the world's best-selling posthumous entertainer. And he had, get this, Aaron, this is uh, astounding, uh, worldwide sales of over $1 billion U.S. dollars. He had wow. uh, 480 active fan clubs and 250,000 people in the U.K. who still bought his albums. And uh, isn't, that, isn't that something else? It, it, it's it's, um, it's mind-blowing. It's, to be honest with you, and, and um, you know, I, I still buy all his albums as they come out, but Tony, it, in your notes, you said that he died owing $3 million? Yeah, isn't that something else? I guess, uh, you know, uh, here's the thing about Elvis, right? He, uh, he was managed throughout his entire career, of course, by Colonel Tom Parker, but Elvis was generous to a fault. You hear... You know, you hear stories of him going to buy a car and there's three other people in the dealership buying cars. And Elvis says, you know what? It's on me, folks. And and he bought Cadillacs and Lincolns for people. And uh, he gave an incredible amount of money to his friends. And uh, there's all kinds of stories of, you know, somebody dies and Elvis covers the hospital bills, right? You hear I mean, the guy was was truly generous, and he just spent his money uh, the way that he wished, and he ended up being in debt when he died. But yeah, it's, I mean, he he was a generous, generous. But I think that's his upbringing. Yeah, absolutely. And he came from nothing, yeah. right? And, yeah. and and a lot of times, that's what they say. Uh, there was a, a study that came out. I was talking about this uh, in class with the kids. Is that they say people who win the lottery. Uh, most of the time end up in five years worse off than they were before winning the lottery, which I guess if you come up, if you're raised not being used to having money, you know, easy come, easy go, right? Well, I think, I think, you know, you, you view money differently, you know, and I think Elvis could have, could, could identify what it felt like to be poor. Mm -hmm. So he didn't want other people to kind of go through that. And I think that, um, you're right. I mean, I've heard that. I, I, you know, I know that the, the lottery thing also breaks up families too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, I guess I don't have to worry about that because I've never won. A, I won a free ticket. 
Yeah, that's about the extent of my winnings too. So yeah. <laughs> I'm not a lottery ticket buyer, full disclosure. Here. No, no, me neither. But uh, you know, Elvis was. I just I, I'm finding it amazing that well, there's still you know last year or two years ago there was an album released in the UK where they had people vote online as to their favorite Elvis songs. Then they compiled them on the album in the order in which so the most requested song to the least requested song. That album made number one. And it was a genius move because, you know, you, you vote for it and then you buy the album. Of course yeah. you're going to buy the album. I yeah, yeah that's know. brilliant. Absolutely. Brian. So there you have it, folks. A double from Memphis to Merseyside moment. And this brings us to the end of road trip number 55. And uh, again, as always, we have to give credit where credit's due. Uh, our music today was written by my good friend and musical partner, Rick Denis. And we can't thank you enough, folks, for everything that you do, including sharing the show uh, with other people or sharing posts or giving us feedback. We love it. And uh, so we are so grateful that you allow us into your headphones every week. And I think, Aaron, it's time for our special new tagline that we've got. Well, I, I agree. And I just want to say thank you. And remember, folks, if you're ever hassled by the man, just keep on rocking. We'll see you next time. <laughs>